Well, welcome to episode one of the VET podcast. And here we go. Hopefully this will be number one of, well, I think 1,000, Mark. What do you think? I'd, I'd like to think we get that far, Brendan. Now, bit of an introduction. I'm Brendan, as Mark has already said, and we have Mark here, and we're we're veterinarians in um, Australia. I'm in Melbourne. Brendan's in Melbourne, and Mark is in Sydney. And our sort of special, not really special interest, because we can't say that, but our our area of um, interest is with unusual pets. Um, Mark, um, in particular, has a bit of a fascination for birds as well. And part of this vet podcast, we may may get off topic at certain times, and we might even talk about um, photography because we're both keen on um, photographing wildlife and and birds for Mark, and um, even street photography for me. Um, but the aim of these podcasts is going to be um, topics of interest, what's happening in the news. So both mainly for vets, um, but also vet vet students as well, and I suppose vet nurses as well. Um, Mark, um, they'd be interested in this as well. So what we'll probably do is every every podcast, and we aim to do one every one to two weeks, probably every fortnight initially, um, and we'll have a topic of interest. Um, and the topic of interest for this podcast is pain and analgesia. Um, and it's a particular interest of both of us um, dealing with unusual pets or exotic pets, um, uh, the fact that unfortunately um, some veterinarians um, worldwide don't realise that um, that um, wildlife and unusual pets feel pain. Um, and it's not just so Mark, it's not just wildlife, um, Brendan. I was uh, talking to the hospital inspector from the New South Wales Veterinary Board, and um, there's uh, five practices in New South Wales that don't use analgesia routinely at all. So, there in veterinary practice, it's a very topical and uh, interesting thing. A little bit controversial in some ways, but particularly appropriate for us who are dealing with birds and reptiles and rabbits and ferrets yeah and i have one little whittles little story from um many years ago of um of um, inadequate or, or well total lack of an analgesia in in a case um that i saw as a second opinion and that's the one that i'll sort of um introduce the topic the main topic today um when we when we go through that but before that i think what we will talk about is um topics of interest so what's happening out there in the vet world and what um what sort of um things do you think are controversial or, or maybe of interest to vets and, and vet nurses and uh trainee vets um at the moment mark i think you had a couple of topics that you i did i had about. my thought at the moment and it's been taking um my a lot of my time and mental effort lately is the um the uh the supply of veterinarians um that uh, I know quite a few where we are here in Newcastle. Um, there's something like uh, 18 practices looking for um, 20 plus uh, veterinarians, um, and there the um, there's a relatively small pool of um, uh, veterinarians looking for jobs, and so the supply of veterinarians uh, for employment. I think that's a, a really topical area at the moment. And it's amazing, I think, considering, and I know it's probably the same in the rest of the world, but certainly here in Australia, that we have more veterinary schools than we um, certainly used to have um, ten, 10 years ago. What, we had four or so vet schools, and now we've got, how many is it now, seven or eight? I think we're up to seven, yeah. Um, and 
they are all reasonably keen on pumping out as many graduates as they can and yet um, practice owners like Mark and myself um, can sometimes struggle to find um, vets out there. So what what are they doing then, these these graduates, Mark? What do you think is happening with these um, new vet graduates? Well, the discussions I've had with uh, other people who are, are uh, pra- maybe practice owners or people who are managing some of the corporates is that um, I think the... There's several factors combining together. I think a, a, a number of the graduates we're producing are returning to their home country where the, the uh, education process um, obviously now supplies the whole of Southeast Asia um, all over the world. There's even We've got an, an American student at the moment who's um, uh, doing their placement at our practice. Um, so I think a lot of those uh, students aren't entering the workforce here in Australia. They're going back to their country of origin. I think there's also a bit of a, a change in life cycle, if you like, um, that when old farts like Brendan and I graduated, it was a, a, uh, a lifelong career. Um, uh, you got your veterinary position and you worked well and continue to work until you're about to drop. But I think uh, many veterinarians now um, take time out for a variety of things, for um, other professional endeavours, for family. Um, And so I don't think there's um, that uh, each graduate who does enter the workforce in Australia ends up adding a full, whatever you want to call it, lifetime uh, veterinarian to the pool of employed veterinarians. Yeah, uh, well, I think that's generally with the workforce, with it, with any professional job, isn't it? These days, the, the bit about people don't last um, for a whole lifetime in one one particular position. But uh, I just find it curious that, um, for instance, that some some of the universities do try to select f- for, um, for instance, some of the rural universities try to select for for veterinarians um, or future veterinarians that will then go and work back in the country practices because the country practices struggle even more than our, our sort of urban practices as far as get, getting veterinarians to stay with them full time. And I was up at um, one of, one of the um, Queensland... Um, veterinary institutions um, earlier this year um, and, and talking to some of the cattle veterinarians and, and, and they just are, are screaming out for vets um, out there in the outback and, and not just in in the outer, it's just, just, just the outskirts of, of towns. Um, they just really struggle to get vets, which is a, also a positive for, for, for new graduates um, in that um, one of the vets I spoke to, he was only um, graduated for two years and he was already a partner in a large practice. He, he worked for 12 months and they offered him partnership after 12 months. Um, so, you know, the opportunities are certainly there for the young graduates to, to grab something like that. And, and they should because, uh, you know, gee, if, if, if I had that opportunity after a couple of years of graduating to, to then get into a partnership, I'd, I'd, retrospectively, I'd think, gee, it would have been great if I'd done that. And then 10, 15, 20 years later, which I'm 30 years later now, um, I could be sitting back and, and um, enjoying life and working a lot less um, than I am at that um, that I am at the moment. Yeah. So, I, uh, yeah, we'd, 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 uh, uh, one of the things we'd like to do is get feedback from this podcast as well. So um, um, f- if you can look at the links we, we supply and, and uh, we'd be curious to people's um, thoughts on um, supplier graduates in their particular country, not just in Australia where we are. Um, and 
you know, are we doing the right things um, with 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 um, pushing out lots of more graduates with um, veterinary veterinary um, faculties or not? And I think also I'm I'm interested in um, in being aware of what. Uh um, those uh, many new graduates who are coming out now, what they're looking for. Um, I think that it's all well and good that I have an idea of what I need, but um, it may well be that uh, the things that um, we're thinking of uh, to offer new graduates might not be exactly what they're looking for. Yeah, I, I think part of that, or a lot of that, with the from from what I see with the bit of teaching I do with the, with with the um, students, is that. Flexibility is probably one of the main things they're looking for these days compared with when we graduate. I remember back in my day when I graduated um, and and, and uh, went into my first small animal practice job in uh, on the outskirts of Melbourne. Um, uh, I, I thought it was a fantastic job because I only had to work one in two weekends um, on call so I was on call every, um, from Friday night to Monday morning and I was also on call every second day um, during the week as well and that was good for those days um, for a new graduate um, and as a bonus I had one Wednesday off a fortnight and that was amazing in those days to actually have a full day off a fortnight um, but boy have things changed now um, um, and I think that's part of the thing some a bit of a disconnect with some of the old old style vets and and the old um, style practice managers and that's um, not adapting to to what new new vets need but I think the new graduates need to need to be aware that um, and I had one 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 vet student asked me this um, she said to me um, if I was applying for a job Brendan at your practice um, what would you say if I came in for the interview and and she hadn't even graduated yet um, if I said I only want to work two days a week um, as a part-time vet um, as a new graduate and I said there's no way I, I would employ you because of the difficulty of being able to train somebody up like that how long would it take to train somebody up to a reasonable standard um, if they're only working one or two days a week so it was unrealistic I think to say the least. And I think the you've made the good point that um, the whole uh, responsibility of out of hours I think that feeds back into what happens in many rural practices that um, where we are in Newcastle where you are in Melbourne um, we're lucky to have um, the backup of uh, adjacent practices and um, emergency hospitals a relatively recent development in our profession and um and so that means that uh the patients we see can have um can have excellent out of hours care um and it not be the huge impost on us or our employees that it once was um but that for many people in in uh, country towns only a little way away from where i am um that's not the case the the uh the veterinarians form the the last, you know, in practice form, the last option for many people. And, and that puts a bit of pressure on um, both the, the uh, new vets and the older vets. Exactly, exactly. I think what, we're gonna, what we will need to do is have a main topic of one of our future podcasts, um, employment and, and the new graduate, um, because I think we could easily fill in one, maybe two podcasts just with talking about um, the pros and the cons of this and and I think also um, tips for 
tips for new graduates and for um, about to graduate veterinarians, um, um, how to get a job, um, what to do um, as far as interview techniques and, and those sorts of things. What do you think? I think it's a good idea, but you can't give away all your secrets, Brendan. Um, no, well, you never know. We might be retired by then. Um, <laughs> um, if if um, if I win lotto um, this week, um, then I can. Or give if you can monetize this podcast. Ah, well, that's extremely unlikely, as you know. We're just doing this for fun. Um, so I think we'll um, head on from that topic. Um, did you have another little um, topical news item or, or uh, of I interest? I was particularly interested to mention um, uh, one of the blogs I regularly follow, one of the veterinary blogs is um, Anne Fawcett's uh, wonderful, um, uh, I think it's called Vet Pet Chat or words to that effect. We'll get the link in um, on the page. Um, but Anne mentioned this morning that... Um, that uh, the oath that is undertaken overseas uh, at the moment in England um, uh, for uh, human medicos has just been changed to include a, a, a statement of intent for self-care, um, a statement along the lines of, um, as well as the other uh, things that are said at our oath, um, uh, a statement that suggests that uh, we'll take the opportunity to look after ourselves uh, in order that we can fulfil our other professional responsibilities. And I think that's a really interesting development, something that will probably be incorporated into to our um, professional oath in the very near future. And I was interested to hear what you thought of it, Brendan. Um, well, I haven't, I haven't seen that um, comment, but so what, uh, or that, or that note. Um, so, tell me a bit more details about it. Um, so uh, the let me just the uh, her, her her website is smallanimaltalk.com. Is that the one? You're that's the one. About? That's exactly it. In the blog from this morning. And I've listed uh, that in our timeline. So for those well of done. you who look at the. Um, um, notes for the podcast you'll see that i'm just so self-care just became a professional obligation for doctors and it's about to be for vets is the is the um title for it yeah um so reading from smallanimaltalk.com if you like mark i'll just read a tiny bit of that um uh, this month on October the 15th, which is 2017, the World Medical Association ratified some key changes to the Geneva Declaration, a kind of modern-day Hippocratic Oath. And a petition started by a New Zealand doctor and signed off by over 4,700 doctors in Australia and New Zealand called for the addition of a pledge about self-care and the ratified change reads I will attend to my own health well-being and abilities in order to provide care of the highest standard um, yeah uh, well uh, yes I think it's very important but um, um, I think there's a difference between stating something like I need to look after myself and, and watch for my own mental health etc and and doing more than just stating that in a sentence. Um, that's the first thing I'd think about when, when reading that. Um, um, did it go into a bit more detail, I think that Mark? The thing that struck me about it was that, um, and, and I take on board fully what, you know, there is a complete, uh, as we well know, there's a complete difference between um, those statements and actions that follow. 
But I think it's a, um, a really important first acknowledgement um, that uh, I, I like to think of it as the, um, the oxygen in the airplane principle that if we don't look after ourselves, um, then we're unlikely to be able to do the best by the people that are working with us or the clients and patients that come to see us. Um, and that acknowledgement is the first step. But I take f on board fully what you're saying, Brendan, that um, statements like this and oaths um, I don't know how many of us can remember our veterinary oath, but uh, um, they I, need I to. Say my, I say my veterinary oath every day. Um, <laughs> that I just hope my clients don't hear me saying it when I'm out the back treating those animals. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but, um, and go ahead, mate. I was just going to say that... Um, that uh, I've had the pleasure of leading some new graduates in the in saying the oath, and I realise how um, how powerful it is uh, 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 that comment and statement. And just to add to it, the intent to look after oneself, I think, is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just clicking through Anne Anne's website, there one 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 of the links was to a Facebook site um, on mental health for veterinarians um, called vet cookbook um, so I'll put the link to that in the timeline as well yeah no I, yeah and I know it's something you've um, you've been very cognizant of um, the mental health in the veterinary industry um, and um, yeah it's something we need to we need to spend more attention to um, including myself that's <laughs> for sure um, as you know um, otherwise we all go crazy um, yeah, um, and I think that's another topic we can have um, for a full podcast as well for our main topic, um, mental health, um, without a doubt. And perhaps we could even um, invite somebody like Anne um, to join us um, to discuss it as well. That sounds excellent. We're racking up the potential topics. We should, We've got enough. certainly won't yeah. be short on stuff to talk about. No, that's right. And, um, yeah, we won't have time to do our usual work, will we? Um, so... Um, I think we should jump in because we're already 18 minutes in and our little intro and, 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 and um, um, news was only supposed to take five or ten minutes, but that's okay. Um, we just don't want to have people falling asleep at their wheel as they're driving <laughs> to work um, listening to our little podcast and we certainly don't want them sat in the car at work um, wanting to listen to the end of it before they um, go to work and end up being late and get told off by their boss. So I think... We should talk about our main topic, um, which is the pain of it all. So, um, and it's one of the areas that both Mark and I are particularly interested in, and that's um, pain relief or analgesia um, in in animals. Um, and I would say, Brendan, that um, you're probably not stating it strong enough. I think that um, rather than just having an interest, I've, I've always um, felt that uh, that um, your expression of your own, your interest is you know you're you're passionate about it and with good reason i think that um that it's uh, uh, uh probably one of the focal things that, uh, that our exotic pets all pets but particularly exotic pets because they don't show those clinical signs that make it clear to us they're in pain um, it's sometimes easy to overlook the fact that they've gone through something particularly stressful and painful um, and and both our experiences, I don't think I'm overstating things, to say that when we do pay attention to it, we clearly see the benefits in the rate of healing and recovery from illness. Yeah, and 
the thing that started me going down the wormhole or the or the rabbit hole or whatever you want to say um, of analgesia in in animals was that case that I sort of hinted at um, earlier, and this is many years ago, but it still shocked me at the time. And it was a referral um, of a guinea pig um, that had um, been desexed um, at an institution that I won't mention. Um, and the guinea pig had no pain relief at all, no analgesia at all, um, either preoperatively, perioperatively during the surgery or postoperatively. Um, so what happened is that guinea pig decided to rip, it was a, it was a um, female guinea pig, decided to rip out the wound from the, from the spay. Um, and it was horrific. So I saw this guinea pig with its whole abdomen, um, had just been ripped apart, um, because it was in so much pain. Um, we eventually got there with that particular case that did survive. Um, I debrided um, the wound um, and then subsequently broke down um, and we ended up um, treating it as an open worm with body bandages over several weeks, but we did finally get there and it did heal. Um, but the thing that struck me about that case is I contacted the referring um, uh, clinic and um, their actual clinic protocol was to all staff and this was a not a small clinic it had many veterinarians there was um, black and white and it said we do not provide analgesia to to any of the pocket pets or exotic pets whatever you call them um, at that time um, because we believe um, they don't, one they don't need it and two um, it just makes the um, anesthesia much more risky um, and I was just flabbergasted um, flabbergasted about it so I ended up um, having a chat to the vets there and they did finally change their protocol I was very nice about it I didn't jump up and down but I um, um, sent them a few reference papers um, um, showing that hey maybe guinea pigs do feel pain um, which we do know they do um, and um, perhaps it is a good idea to provide adequate analgesia and from that point onwards I was you know just amazed and fascinated with with the whole process of it and I'm of analgesia and, and what does and what doesn't work which is a whole new another ball game isn't it especially when we talk about um some of the species that we commonly deal with um like the reptiles for instance um which which analgesics do or don't work in them and and we still don't don't know a lot do we um about which ones do or don't but um the bottom line is that you know assume all animals feel pain unless proven otherwise and i think that's uh, that's exactly the summary and, and including species of, of um, that we may not even think about that may um, may need pain relief and including invertebrates for instance or fish um, or amphibians um, yeah I, I'm I sure you've had a the, few the um the the, the thing the the uh, um, phrase that always jumps to my mind um, is that uh, as veterinarians we're probably overly um, happy to supply uh, antibiotics on a suspicion that we have infections um, and in those cases the potential is there for us to do um, quite a deal of damage if we use those drugs inappropriately um, and yet um, uh, particularly a few years ago that well, I think there are signs that things are changing but um, I'm, I like you uh, am sh was at that time shocked to um, to hear that people would say that they didn't think those species felt pain and uh and they'd be um reticent to supply pain relief um when when uh you know just on the basis of all 
uh, logical in uh, reductive uh, thought and uh, knowing that they've got the nerves and the nociceptors and um, knowing the response they have to major procedures, um, uh, pain relief is really, really important. And I so think with the good your new- guinea pig, with your guinea pig, what what would you do now with respect to pain relief? Well, I wouldn't send them to the <laughs> clinic anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, I was going to say not that they're around anymore, but they are. Um, but they have changed their policy. Um, okay, yeah. So preemptive, preemptive pain relief. So if we if we um, stuck with um, a guinea pig, then yeah, my my standard sort of um, protocol for um, um, routine desexins for guinea pigs, the males and the females, is um, and this is what I use, and I and, and certainly I'm sure it varies what what exotic vets you do worldwide. Um, um, works for me, and I think it works for the animals, and and based on based on literature, um, these particular drugs work in the in the species. Um, I use um, I I give them methadone um, as a pre medicant, and that's all I give as a pre med for for guinea pig um, routine desexins in in healthy animals, um, or apparently healthy guinea pigs. Um, one milligram or two milligrams per kilogram subcutaneous, and that's my standard pre med for them um, during the surgery. Um, or immediately um, post-operatively when they're waking up, um, they will get um, some meloxicam um, subcutaneously and they will go home on meloxicam um, once a day, one milligram per kilo is the dose that I use in Ginmigs, um, once a day um, using the oral meloxicam. Um, and for those of you who don't to many um, unusual pets or guinea pigs. The reason why we, um, those of us who do see lots of exotics use meloxicam a lot is because of the um, compliance of it, because it comes in that nice liquid honey flavoured, usually um, liquid, um, not that meloxicam is any better as an analgesic and as a non-steroidal than, say, cuprofen. It's just that the, the, it comes in the the um the, the nice liquid rather than the tablet that you might have to compound up so that's what we use and and we make sure that that's part of the package that if a client rings up or books their animal in for a desec routine desection of, of a guinea pig that it includes the post-operative um, um, pain relief for three to five days usually three really, days for the boys I really like you making that point Brendan one of the things that you know I don't get on my soapbox about many things but one thing that really rubs me the wrong way is uh, the the option for pain relief when uh, when clients are admitting their animals to hospital they obviously fill out a consent form um, and on that consent form at some hospitals the the uh, things like pain relief might be listed as um, as optional extras and in my mind that's um that's not appropriate they um deserve pain relief and it should be as you said factored into the um the cost of the whole process the whole procedure um and it's not a, an optional extra at all absolutely and i don't think it really affects um um people who are shopping anyway for prices um and and the way to sort of get around that is um, one, it's the right thing to do, number one by far, but also um, 
um, you train the receptionists and nurses to to state that um, if if a client rings up to book in a guinea pig for desexin, for example, um, they're told um, the whole process that it includes a pre preoperative vet check. It includes the um, uh, um, pre med and, and the anaesthetic, but it also includes pain relief, um, including post operative pain relief, because we got we regard that as mandatory. Um, and they may or may not mention that. Um, you know, hey, some clinics might offer that as an option, um, but we regard it as mandatory. And when people realise that, that, that hey, um, you, you're going that extra step and you're, you're thinking about providing adequate analgesia for that patient, then, then that extra, whatever it is, ten, twenty, thirty dollars that you're adding on compared maybe with another clinic, um, um, should be of no significance at all. Um, yeah. And certainly that's been my experience um, in the practice we work at. Uh, it really is, uh, has become not even a significant issue. Um, the, the, uh, the clients literally get to the point where they expect um, the animal's going to get uh, perf- the best possible pain control. The other thing that um, I was interested to hear uh, uh, in your comments, Brendan, in your protocol was that, um, like mine, the doses of um, the opioid drugs uh, that we use in um, guinea pigs and our other um, exotic pets are often much, much higher than what we're used to in in uh, in dogs and cats and um, maybe like a factor of 10, an order of magnitude higher. Um, and that was, that's something that uh, when I first started doing this, I struggled a little bit with. I was worried that um, we were going to see impacts on respiration and, and anaesthetics uh, but um, but that's not been the case, and using those high doses, um, well, relatively high doses, appropriate doses for those species, um, uh, definitely makes a significant difference to their rate of recovery. Yeah, and I and I don't think there's much point as sort of rattling through dose rates for for all the, a huge range of species here. I mean, the bottom line is um, if. If you're a vet who's who um, only occasionally deals with unusual pets, is that um, I'd say a couple of things. One is just look up your resources, and for those of you who are members of VIN or have access to VIN, it's quite easy to then look um, on VIN or post a comment on VIN um, and get a reply there. Or those of you who are members of you know national veterinary organisations, or even better, the unusual. Um, pet um, interest groups, um, so UPAV um, is the AVA, Australian Veterinary Association, one that we're, we're members of. Um, you can um, post comments to members there um, or look up the exotic animal formulary um, or any of the, you know, um, the common sort of textbooks that people will probably have on their shelf. Um, for instance, BSAVA man- manuals are quite good. Um, the exotic manuals, etc., will list um, um, common dose rates. Um, um, don't guess, um, you know, so don't think, oh, I'll give 10 times the dose rate for this particular <laughs> species. Um, no. Um, and especially when we're dealing with a lot of exotics, we're dealing with really small animals too. So you don't want to mess around with with um, making mistakes with um, when you get out that calculator and, 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 and put in a decimal place where it shouldn't be because we're often diluting down... Um, all sorts of medications and, and, and drugs that we're using in the species. So sit and take your time. Um, and that's a particularly good good point to make with because uh, we would be routinely now using a little bit of um, lignocaine in um, some of those procedures as well to um, provide um, 
regional anesthesia um, on top of the general anesthesia and and act as another feature in multimodal anesthesia. Uh, uh, analgesia um, and there's often um, you know a little bit of fear about using uh, drugs like lignocaine in animals like guinea pigs and ferrets um, even birds um, there's some uh, concern about using them but our experience has been if you do take the time to accurately calculate your dose um, there's very little problem it's only when you um, you know a, a drop of uh, the lignocaine in a a finch or a budgeria can be a dangerous overdose and so measuring your doses accurately whatever the drug is really important yep definitely and um yeah, I, um, when we had vet students coming through my practice, we make sure we um, go through that whole process if we use in um, the local, local anaesthetics. And I use them all the time now, especially for things like um, rabbit dental work. And we use the regional nerve blocks um, for the dentals. Um, and we're using a 20 milligram per mil um, lignocaine, um, which we I need to make sure I'm diluting that down. Um, I usually dilute it down to one milligram per mil um, to use in, in the, those small patients. Yeah, so yes, and multimodal. The interesting, the interesting thing oh. about that dilution is that um, it looks, it's, um, I don't notice any difference. Like you can dilute it quite significantly and it still has uh, profound um, local anaesthetic effects. So yeah, dilute it and get the accurate dose. And I think clients are certainly wanting the, the the pain relief for their pets increasingly because they see how how um, in the human anaesthesia and analgesia field they've they've really got on top of it. Um, you know, I had surgery about three years ago for my knee where I had um, medial meniscus most of that taken out um, from wear and tear, and um, yeah, after you know, it was only a day procedure and endoscopy. Um, and I said, yeah, give me the pain relief. And um, it, it's, they, they work really well. The, the unfortunate thing is I can't remember much of it because I think that the drugs they were giving me um, made me lose my short-term memory as well. Probably my long-term memory as well, I think. Um, that explains a lot. Um, so, yeah, um, so people go through the whole process and I, I don't think I've, I've ever signed a form saying do I want analgesia or not when, when I've had any minor procedures. Um, I've been lucky enough not to have any major surgeries um, and, I, and I think people would be shocked if they turned up and um, for themselves that um, they had to tick a box, do you want post-operative pain relief or not? Um, and so it should be offered all the time and, and every time. Um, so I, th I think, Mark, what we should do is just meant, um, just just to finish off this first podcast is talk a little bit about um, analgesia and some of the groups of species that people don't think about um, providing analgesia. And, and the one that I think we should concentrate on is, again, um, animals that we spend a lot of time treating and, and, and caring for, and that's reptiles. Um, and the frustrating thing I find as well is that um, we see um, a reasonable amount of wildlife um, and we get calls from other veterinarians in our, in our, um, around our city um, asking advice for treating wildlife and it might be a turtle that had been um, bowled over by a car, a motor car, or um, somebody who was um, digging up in their garden and um, accidentally took the top off a shell on a turtle that was sitting there um, and um, the veterinarians may um, 
then think that just by giving that um, reptile, that wildlife, um, an injection of a non-steroid or something like carprofen or meloxicam, they're providing adequate pain relief. So do you want to just briefly talk about that, Mark, and what other options you suggest um, um, that you might do that, that of, of drugs that may probably work um, reasonably well as an analgesic in reptiles? Well, I think the, the same general principles apply. Um, and I suppose the first thing um, that I, that uh, when we're talking to students about um, analgesia, we have a bit of a focus on the, the drugs that we use, but I think uh, it's critically important to, um, to do a bit of environmental management um, outside the animal. So the first thing there is to make sure that, um, that they're at their preferred body temperature or their um, within their preferred optimal temperature zone, um, they're going to uh, metabolise the analgesics you give them in such a way that uh, that it provides the best pain relief, um, and you're probably going to be able to pick up changes that uh, give you a clue that they're still in pain if that's the case. Whereas if they're let to get they're left to get too cold, um, then uh, they will get in a downhill spiral, and you won't necessarily be able to see what's going on. And the other thing uh, in terms of environmental support um, is just to, um, you know, dress a wound, to splinter, fracture, to uh, hold things in place so that they're not moving. Um, that's, a, a, you know, we, we do focus on the medications that help, but uh, um, those practical uh, nursing care uh, aspects of pain relief are also really important. Um, and and then once we get to the the uh, the actual uh, our actual attempts to control pain, we find that uh, just as with our guinea pigs, the um, the mu agonist opioids are uh, the ones that we turn to most frequently first up. Um, and so, just as uh, Brendan talked about methadone, we would be frequently using that as our first uh, first line treatment. Um, there's uh, and this is an active area of research and um, the thing that does uh, amaze me constantly is that um, uh, researchers around the world, particularly uh, the sort of hotbed of reptile veterinary care in Florida, um, they're literally coming up with uh, new recommendations, um, like literally as we speak. Um, so uh, this is an area of gradual change and um, as we learn more we do more but um, but definitely uh, methadone or um, uh, one of the other mu agonists is our first choice and I think um, I just thought of something there that um, not infrequently I, I, I get comments from especially from um, vets who who are not confident or used to dealing with reptiles is they may have a client coming in um, and the client says, oh, I my reptile seemed a bit sore. It had a big open wound um, and the, 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 I've, I've put him in the fridge or the freezer um, to to provide some pain relief. Um, and Mark and I, we can certainly remember the bad old days, even when there were some um, vets or, or veterinarians um, that would recommend many, many years ago that um, a method of um, um, supposedly anaesthetising doesn't provide any um, pain relief at all. It, it just immobilises them. It, it um, put in reptiles in the freezer um, and then pulling them out when they're immobilised um, to perform surgery on them. Thank goodness, hopefully nobody does that anymore. But um, you will 
get an odd client who who um, has put their their reptile in the fridge or the freezer, thinking that it's a a method of providing some some pain relief. So um, yeah, um, you need to sort of educate them gently um, that maybe that isn't providing um, analgesia. And I'm going to cut and paste a couple of a couple of websites. Um, um, for our listeners um, on analgesia and reptiles and the second one is actually um, fairly a fairly new um, guidelines on reptile anesthesia and and, and, surg and, and surgery um, um, which um, is from Michigan Medic Medicine um, University of Michigan I think it is I mean it's, it's fairly new I haven't read through it all but I think it's a pretty good summary of um, um, some of the drugs that do and don't work in reptiles um, as far as providing uh, pain relief yeah you've um, and those links to Michigan and uh, particularly the, the the types of um, uh, opioids that uh, we've, we've in years gone by we've been uh, known to use um, butorphanol as a pre-med or um, even as an analgesic and uh, we now know that quite clearly it uh, pretty much in reptiles doesn't have particularly in the species we regularly see doesn't have much in the way of um, sedative effect it doesn't have any uh, isofluorine sparing effect and it certainly um, by the, the uh, experiments that have been done at the moment doesn't seem to have any analgesic effect so um, uh, I think uh, um, using drugs like butorphanol is um, we've moved on from there and we're looking at those mu agonists. The other thing um, uh, is that uh, the tramadol um, uh, it's a bit of a controversial drug in small animal medicine, and I speak to emergency vets who uh, who uh, think it pretty much doesn't do too much for dogs and cats. Um, but there's certainly a growing body of evidence that, uh, as an ambulatory therapy, um, the the tramadol drops can be a useful thing in reptiles as well. So um, I'll be interested to check out the links you've got there, Brendan. Yeah, tramadol is yeah interesting. I suppose is a way to um, describe it. You're, you're correct um, because I find um, I I certainly dispense tramadol fairly frequently for various various some um, pets, not just the reptiles. Some um, rabbits is is one example, and and yeah, I think the jury's out with with how well tramadol does or doesn't work. And I think it it's probably just v extremely variable depending on the species it's been given to. Um, um, even with rabbits, for instance, I've found that some rabbits you put them on a a dose of tramadol, and it seem, seem apparently provides some some pain relief. Um, if you, if you look at the behavioural changes in that animal post giving it, and, and others, even with really high doses, it doesn't seem to touch the sides and provide any pain relief at all. So, it's a it's an interesting um, class of drugs, and I think um, um, it, it has the same sort of controversies in human medicine as well, doesn't it, Mark? Because I think you've looked up some of the some of the um, references to that sort of stuff in, in in use of tramadol in humans. And that's definitely the case. The the um, the our human um, colleagues, our, the the doctors that looked at, look after human pain, um, they certainly. Uh, have mixed feelings about how useful tramadol is, um, and uh, and but I'd, I'd certainly uh, I would echo your thoughts that um, 
in reptiles and uh, and several species of small animal. I think the my uh, and I'm careful to oh, not to overinterpret um, the so small sample space that I have, um, but um, certainly the anecdotal experience I have suggests that I get a response when I use it in my yeah. patients. Yep, yep, and I, I yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I still use it um, in my patients um, as well, um, and I've just um, cross-referenced another paper, a, a summary of tramadol from Journal of Exotic Pet Medicine, which um, for those of us um, um, who treat exotics, it's probably our main go-to journal, and that's a January 2017 summary of tramadol. It's a great little summary there, and it, and it goes through some of the, the limited studies that have um, been um, published on the use of tramadol in exotic pets, including reptiles and ferrets and rabbits, etc. You know, for instance, rabbits, I mean, I st and I'm just trying to read that summary at the moment as I talk, rabbits that they recommend it um, anecdotally, the dose of 10 milligrams per kilogram orally one or twice daily and that's I usually start at 10 milligrams per kilo in rabbits and some of them I'm going 20 even even 30 milligrams per kilo um, with them um, and it doesn't seem in certainly in some individuals to have any any side effects like like sedative effects in some of them and like I said before some of them it doesn't seem to make any difference at all and doesn't seem to provide any any pain relief but that's all anecdotal just based on how that individual animal responds um, and not based on the research so pain relief in animals I think what's the summary mark um, and then we'll, we, we better we better let people get into their um, clinic and and practice some good analgesic um, um, pain um, therapeutics well, the for the take-home message is that um, is that they should be constantly aware that um, uh, they're, they're particularly their exotic patients, their birds and reptiles, their rabbits, guinea pigs and ferrets are going to be better off if they're conscious of the, the pain that they're going through and they're thinking of ways to treat it. Exactly. Yep, definitely. Positively. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think um, we're almost up to the well, we are up to the forty-five minute mark. So um, we better stop talking and um, start thinking about some of these other topics. But what we'd like people to do um, for all those people listening, which uh, I think is one, one. Well, it's not a person; it's one of my dogs. It's Jezza, um, the greyhound, is 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 lying flat out of sleep as greyhounds do. I think that's our only um, our only subscriber at the moment. Um, but if we do get further subscribers, if you um, want to send us a, a, a question or, or a topic you think would be of interest, um, whether you're a, a veterinarian or a, or a um, veterinary student or even a vet nurse, um, send them in and we'll um, say hello to you online um, in our podcast and give you a shout out. And we'll also um, perhaps talk about your topic, depending on what you, um, what you suggest we talk about. Um, so... Thanks for listening and we look forward to you subscribing and listening to episode two. Bye for now.